This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Hello, and welcome to Idea City on the Air. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Nimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, Alex Tapscott speaks about the circumstances that led to the creation of blockchain. Now, let's join Moses as he introduces Alex to the stage. So, um, blockchain. In theory, these new kinds of money, of which there are over a thousand, did you know that already? The theory of these new kinds of money is that they are alternatives to an eventual competition for what's called fiat or state money, which is so frequently debased by inept and or corrupt governments. My own view is that almost from the very beginning, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Phonium, and all of their kind have really at the beginning been a measure of all the hot and dirty money there is in the world, and there is a lot. Let's begin with you, Alex. We're all talking about this thing. We barely understand it. Please come and help us out. Well, thank you, Moses, for that very colorful introduction. The reason that we believe that blockchain is uh, going to be profoundly disruptive is because it represents nothing short of the second era of the internet. Now, the second era of the internet is part of this new fourth industrial age, which I think um, all of us have sort of involuntarily become immersed in. And there's lots of technologies that make up this uh, new period of human development. I think yesterday you heard a lot about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, You might also hear about, you know, technology in our bodies, robotics, space travel, and all these other really important innovations. But it's really the blockchain that's going to help to animate these new technologies and really bring about a period of profound change. So before I go on here, just a quick show of hands, who's heard of this thing, blockchain? And who understands it really well? All right, that's not bad. So when you use the internet today to send and move and share information, you're not actually sending an original, unique thing. You're sending a copy, and you're retaining an original. Now, for most kinds of information, that's okay. So if I send an email to one person, I can send the same email to someone else or many more people. If I post a a tweet, anybody can see it. If I host a website, it's available for all to access. So the internet, as the first digital medium for information, basically was like our own personal printing press. We could create as much information and disseminate it as far and as wide as we wanted to. And for a lot of kinds of information, that's hugely important and has been very impactful on the world. However, when it comes to things that have value, assets like money, 
being able to send a copy is actually a terrible idea. So, sir, since you're in the front row, if I owe you $20 for beers last night, we didn't actually go out, but like, it's a hypothetical, um, and I send it to you, it's important that when you receive it, that you know you have the only version of that, that I can't send the same $20 to the next person or to everybody in this room. Because if I could copy money the way I can copy information, the money becomes worthless. So it's good to have a printing press for information. It's not so good if everybody has a printing press for money. And this is a very specific problem computer scientists have been trying to figure out. It's called the double spend problem. How do you ensure that when you move something of value online that you aren't leaving behind a copy, a trail of breadcrumbs? And because it's such a difficult problem to solve, we've always had to rely on intermediaries, middlemen, banks, brokers, but increasingly big technology companies like Google, Amazon, social media firms like Facebook, who sit in the center and basically coordinate between parties. They establish identity, they create trust, and they perform what's called business logic, clearing, settling, contracting, record-keeping, data processing. And overall, they do a pretty good job. But they have some specific limitations. They're centralized, which makes them vulnerable to attack. They exclude big parts of the population. There are two billion who don't have access to financial services. They add cost and friction to the process of moving value online. Uh, it takes you know, a few days to move money between two people on different sides of a border and can cost upwards of 10%. So we talk about this market for cross-border payments, which is kind of odd when you really think about it. When was the last time anybody here sent a cross-border email? It doesn't really exist, right? I mean, the information flows instantly. You can beam an email around the world 100 times in a second, but you can't move value between two parties uh, in less than seven days. So overall, these intermediaries have done a pretty good job, uh, but they have had some limitations. And the biggest one is that they capture the data that we have to share in order to do business online. Every time you enter into a transaction, you're leaving behind information about yourself. So what if the internet were entering a second era? From an internet of information to an internet of value, based on this new technology platform called blockchain. So a blockchain, in essence, is a vast global distributed ledger or database, kind of like a record of transactions. Except instead of most traditional records, which sit inside of banks or governments or other corporations, this one exists across every computer that's connected to the network. And on this network, not just information like PDFs and emails and websites, but things that have value, assets like money, stocks and bonds, titles and deeds, IP, votes in an election, can be moved stored and managed peer-to-peer, -peer, where trust is not established by an intermediary, but through a combination of collaboration, consensus, and clever code. The network itself establishes trust, which is why we call blockchain the trust protocol. So all of this started with Bitcoin. No, Bitcoin was designed to do a simple thing, to be cash for the internet, a way to move money peer-to-peer -peer without the need for an intermediary. So in the same way that if I went to Tim Hortons across the street with five bucks and bought a coffee and a donut, and I handed that five dollars to that clerk, I'm not using the Visa network. I'm not showing him my driver's license. We're not using PayPal. Cash is what's called a bearer instrument. Once you are the bearer of it, you have it, and the other person doesn't. Something like that did not exist online. And what Bitcoin did is basically solve that problem. And it worked so well that it set off the spark, which is caught on like wildfire, and it's created all sorts of excitement, but it's also provoked the ire of a lot of, uh, shall we say, uh, more seasoned people. Um, <laughs> Warren Buffett says that Bitcoin is probably rat poison squared. This is something we've seen before, you know, uh, leaders of old paradigms kind of react to these new uh, technologies and new trends with, with uh, sarcasm sometimes, you know, humor, and eventually hostility. And I think that's not um, special about blockchain. And frankly, 
Um, I have great respect for Warren Buffett, but he missed the internet revolution and he's going to miss this one too. So we heard about cryptocurrencies in Moses' introduction, and I think it's important to kind of demystify what exactly we're talking about, because there are a thousand of these digital assets out there. And to the outside observer looking in, you might think, well, why do we need a thousand currencies? Surely the fewer currencies there are, the better. That way you can you know, move value and everybody recognizes what things are worth, regardless of where you are. If we have a thousand currencies, it's kind of like the system we have today, where every little country's got their own currency and there's tons of friction between those countries. And that's true. And what's important to note about this whole space is that most of these things are actually not currencies in the traditional sense. They actually fall into one of seven different categories, of which currencies is really just one. But let's talk about them. Cryptocurrencies. The big B, Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is the mother of all cryptocurrencies. It's the you know, ship that launched a thousand others. And um, it is right now worth about $100 billion and processes billions of dollars of transaction volume a day. It's used by tens of millions of people um, on every single continent, including Antarctica and also in space. So Bitcoin is a powerful technology and it spawned a whole bunch of other different kinds of cryptocurrencies that are designed to be a currency. So a currency is a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account a way to move money, store money, and a way to price things, basically. And that's what these currencies are designed for. And some of these other ones, like Monero and Zcash and Dash, which is what three of those little funny ones on the side are, are uh, basically designed to be like Bitcoin, except m with some tweaks, more uh, anonymous in the payments. And there's lots of very valid use cases for anonymous payments. Maybe you're uh, a woman in Saudi Arabia that wants to get an online subscription, and you don't want, want the government to know that you're doing that. Coming up after the break. We are going to be using the blockchain to create and issue uh, financial assets. The value of the whole crypto asset industry today is around $285 billion. Pretty big, about the third of the value of uh, Apple, right? The biggest company in the world. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. You're listening to Alex Tapscott speak about the creation of blockchain. Category number two are platforms. Ethereum. Who's heard of Ethereum? Good Canadian crowd. Yeah. Canada's most successful startup ever, basically, uh, is this platform called Ethereum. It was started by a 19-year-old University of Waterloo graduate named Vitalik Buterin, who, along with his friends, created this platform, um, issued tokens in their platform back in 2014 um, and raised $18 million. And that platform went live in 2016. Uh, today it's now worth around $45 billion. Why? Good question. Uh, people think of Ethereum and Bitcoin, they kind of compare them as being the same. They're not. Bitcoin is designed to be a currency. Ethereum is a platform technology, meaning that you can use it to build and run applications that do lots of things where currency is just one of many applications. So you can build a stock market, you can build a supply chain, you can build a casino, you can build, you get the idea. And uh, as a result of this technology being general purpose, meaning it can be used to program other things, uh, these new protocols have become much more valuable. So Bitcoin, when the, when the book came out, Bitcoin was 85% of the market. Today, it's about 35% of the market because of the ascent of these new protocols. And one of the big things that's driving them is that platforms like Ethereum are completely transforming the venture capital industry in ways that are broadly positive, though there are some downsides, which I'll discuss. So an ICO stands for Initial Coin Offering. It's a bit of a misnomer. 
because it, it forces us to think of all these things as coins, like currencies, and they're not. Um, but it's caught on as the term that we use. And basically what an ICO is, is a company or a project or a platform issues a token that represents some kind of value in what they're building for money. And that's how they raise money. So they don't go to venture capitalists, they don't go to Bay Street investment bankers, they go direct to this global capital market of individuals that want to be participants in the network. In 2016, the amount of money raised this way was $165 million, which is kind of interesting. It's good for you know, writing an article or two, but it's not really shaking the boots of the uh, big banks. Um, fast forward to last year, and the amount of money raised was $7 billion. And through the first two quarters of this year, it's over $10 billion. So all of a sudden, the venture capital industry has been completely transformed, and Wall Street will be next. The majority of the activity in ICOs happens on the Ethereum network. So the more activity there is, the more demand there is for their native token, the more the value of the network increases. It's kind of like if you could own a piece of the internet rather than having to invest directly into Apple and Google and Amazon? What if you could actually own a piece of the underlying technology? That's what these new protocols afford. Most of the companies and projects that have launched on these platforms have done this thing called issuing a utility token. Now, a utility token is not exactly like equity. It's kind of something different. You can imagine um, an entrepreneur that's got a really innovative new roller coaster, and he's going to sell, basically, rides on that roller coaster at a massive discount to people who share his vision. And so he issues basically a share of uh, a right to ride the, the, uh, the, the roller coaster to individuals. The money they raise helps to build the roller coaster, and all the people in this community help to support and maintain it. It's not an exact analogy, but basically the point is that the people who provide the capital are also your users, and they're also the people who help you to develop and build it. And this is the way a lot of projects have uh, launched over the past um, year and a half. I'm not going to go into the individual models, but there are a lot of really interesting ways to build utility into a token. However, I think many of the tokens that launched last year weren't actually utility tokens, they were securities. And for those of you who don't know, like a security is like a stock or a bond, basically. So these people were issuing something to raise money to help build their company, which isn't a utility token, it's kind of more like stock in a company. And that's okay, and I actually think that that's the future of a lot of token projects, which is that we are going to be using the blockchain to create and issue uh, financial assets. The value of the whole crypto asset industry today is around $285 billion dollars, pretty big, about the third of the value of uh, Apple, right? The biggest company in the world. But if you compare it to, say, the global stock market, which is worth $110 trillion, it's still very small. There's no reason why the stocks that we trade today need to clear and settle T plus three, meaning when you buy and sell it, it takes actually three days to deliver the actual value to the person who bought or sold it, uh, it should take T plus zero, and that's possible with this technology. There's no reason why we should have custodians and clearing houses and exchanges and all the other sort of intermediaries that add friction to the system when everything can be done on a blockchain. So I think that we're about to see the biggest migration of wealth ever from analog to a digital format. The fifth category are these things called natural asset tokens, so similar to security tokens except where there's a delivery of a physical asset like say gold or oil or something else. Now this is most interesting to me for what it could mean for frontier markets like carbon markets. So right now there's no real standard for what a carbon credit should look like for retail and commercial and for government use. Every country has a different standard. So what if we could create a standard token format of a carbon asset that you could use to offset your footprint in you know, Karachi and Toronto and New York and Winnipeg, I mean, anywhere in the world. I mean, that's something that could help to unleash the power of what is ultimately one of the biggest markets in the world. Number six is crypto collectibles. So crypto collectibles, by the way, crypto kitties. Who, who owns a crypto kitty? 
owns one, not heard of one. No? Really? Looking at you. No CryptoKitty? <laughs> All right. Um, so CryptoKitty is a, what's called a crypto collectible. So basically, it is a uh, unique digital asset that is uh, basically a cartoon cat. You can buy it, sell it, breed it, marry it, merge it, whatever. So the most expensive CryptoKitty ever sold for $140,000. Why? <laughs> Good question. Um, other than someone having too much money and an unhealthy love of cats, the reason is that they, the only way you'd, you would spend that much money on anything is if you knew it was authentic, basically. And the only way you can prove its authenticity is to prove that it's unique. And what we can do with the blockchain is we can do assets that have many of a type, like say Bitcoin, there are many Bitcoin, uh, or say shares in the company, there are many shares in the company. Or we can do assets that are totally unique, like art, like collectibles, like assets in virtual worlds, like assets in the real world. There are lots of things, Kerner Hall, is unique. It's a unique asset. There's no other Kerner Hall in the world. So we can use these standards to help to tokenize unique assets. And that creates huge opportunities, like the global art market, for example, is worth $45 billion. The final category are these things called uh, crypto fiat currencies and stable coins. So a stable coin is basically a coin that tries to maintain the same value in some other asset. So like, let's say it tries to be worth one US dollar always and forever. Um, these are kind of interesting. I'm not going to get into it. What's more interesting to me are these crypto fiat currencies, which is basically currencies issued by governments or central banks, but that are done on the blockchain. So you might think that this is something you know, the US or Canada or the UK or China might be interested in, and they have spent a lot of time talking about it, but it's actually been, shall I say, roguish countries that have um, actually made real progress. Specifically, Venezuela issued this thing called the Petro, claimed to have raised $700 million in an ICO earlier this year. And the Petro is basically a natural asset token that allows you to redeem for oil that's in the ground. Now, you might think that's probably not going to be successful. You know, Venezuela isn't known for managing its economy particularly well. But what it does represent is um, proof that this can work. And it shows that countries like this might decide to build separate monetary rails to the US dollar system to try and get around things like sanctions, which is something that's deeply disturbing. So it's important for Canada and other advanced nations to move ahead. So it's important now for you to realize we're not talking about a thousand currencies, we're talking about the digitization of all the assets in the world. And that is going to be one of the most profound and important things that happens in technology. There are questions about regulations, important questions that need to be answered. And I'm not going to get into this discussion, but only to say one thing, which is that you want to make sure that the rules you create don't have unintended consequences and that they pr predict or help to predict what the future is going to be like rather than the past. So I'm going to end with this, and I know I'm 30 seconds over, uh, but I think it's a helpful metaphor. It was popularized by the futurist Ray Kurzweil. And it goes something like this. So, the uh, king of the land is so pleased with the invention of chess that he offers the inventor anything in the kingdom, whatever his heart desires, as a reward. And the inventor says, oh, you know, I'm a humble servant of the king. All I wish is for some rice to feed my family. But I want you to give it to me in this way. One grain on the first piece, two grains on the second piece of the chessboard, four grains on the third piece of the chessboard, eight grains on the fourth piece of the chessboard, 16 on the fifth, and so on. And the king, who I gather is like, not a math guy, um, 
says, yeah, fine, sure, whatever. What's that, like a bag of rice? Humble request from a humble man. Sure, you're done. Of course, 16 becomes 32, becomes 64, becomes 128, and so on. So by halfway through the chessboard, it's more rice than the whole kingdom can produce in a year. And by the end of the chessboard, it's enough rice to cover the whole planet in six feet of rice. By the way, side story, King gets really irritated, chops the guy's head off. <laughs> That's not the point of my story. The point of my story is that technology is exponential, and we're in this period now where we're entering the second half of the chessboard. So get involved. Thank you very much. That was Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.